I invite you to be seated this morning. If you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. Book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. We're going to let the uh, children be dismissed uh, for junior church. First Corinthians chapter four. I want to begin reading in verse fourteen. Bob, can you bring up the lights back there? If you would, thank you. Paul says, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. You might say, okay, what is it that Paul is referring to in verse 14? Uh, If you were to take time to go back and read verses 8 through 13, you would find that Paul has delivered to this church a statement that that is ironic, it's a bit biting. Uh, It is a means by which he is seeking to rebuke them, to draw them back to a place of humility. They have been infected, if you will, with pride and boasting in leaders. Verse 7 makes that very clear at the end of the verse. He says, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. End of verse, or end of verse 7 he says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as, you, as if you did not receive it? So there is this underlying tendency towards arrogance and the result is complacency on the part of the church in Corinth. And Paul's coming to them as their spiritual father, rebuking the pride and seeking to draw them back to a place of humility where they will relate properly to God and to his leadership as their spiritual father. So verse 14 is reflecting back on that. I'm not writing this rebuke to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Verse 15 then. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ... You do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me for this reason. I am sending Timothy to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant. And there's that There's the issue, an arrogance that has led to a form of spiritual complacency. Paul's desire is to shock them out of that complacency and arrogance. You're arrogant as if I were not coming to you. The idea is Paul's big in his words, but he's short on showing up. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. And I think, if you just ask me, Tim, what do you think power means there? I think power there means a life deeply devoted to Christ. That power in the kingdom of God is an outflow of character and integrity and genuineness. These people were all talk. And Paul's saying, we'll come and find out the truth of what you're about. And then he's going to say something very strong. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a spirit of gentleness, strong words. 
That's the kind of words that when you read them, you kind of back up and say, whoa, that is kind of devastating terminology that Paul is using. Paul has identified his role in this church as their spiritual father. They are, according to verse 14, his dear spiritual children. If you're here this morning and you are a dad, you know this. You know being a dad is a great privilege. It is an honor. It is hard. It is difficult. And it is demanding. I want us to focus our attention on this text by looking at this unique role that the Apostle Paul assumes with the church in Corinth. And the uniqueness of the father's role is pointed out in verse 15. He says, even though you have 10,000 guardians, and, and this obviously is exaggeration on Paul's part, okay? He's exaggerating for the sake of a point. You may have 10,000 people who have come along and assisted you in your progress. In the ancient world, uh, children would be placed under a custodian. That custodian was responsible for the education and character development of the child. That custodian may put that child out into many settings for its growth. And so Paul's saying, you may have 10,000 guardians, people that were responsible for your shaping influences in your life, but you only have, going back now to the physical analogy, one father. And what is Paul doing? He's putting in himself in a position of being the spiritual father of the church in Corinth, so that then he be, can begin to speak incisively into their life. He knows that. He has a position that no one else can have in their life. The person that led you to Jesus Christ is the only person that will ever lead you to Christ. You have, may have many people along the way who were responsible for your discipleship and seeing you grow in Christ, but you only have one spiritual mother or father in Christ. That is the person who took responsibility to bring the good news of Christ to you and to see you born by the Spirit of God into God's family. That is the position that Paul has in this church. In a sense, what is he saying to them? You only have one spiritual father. You have one dad. And there is a special relationship that Paul that Paul feels with this church. He is their father because they are his spiritual children. Okay? What makes someone a father in the human realm? Okay? It is this. Through, with, along with a woman, giving birth to a child is what makes someone a father. It is the result of a biological event or occurrence. What makes someone a dad? What makes someone a dad? You see, it's easy to be a father. It's hard to be a dad. You can be a father simply by a biological choice or act. But you can't be a dad by simply impregnating someone and seeing them give birth. That doesn't make you a dad. It makes you a father. It gives you the responsibility of being a dad. But it doesn't make you a good dad. As the Apostle Paul writes to this church, he is assuming that he is their spiritual father. He is their papa. He is their daddy in Christ. And he is assuming that he bears with them very certain specific responsibilities that go along with that role. And this morning, I want to speak to every dad here. And to kind of mirror off of Paul's discussion. To help us to understand the importance of our God-given role in our family here. As I go through this, I pray that you as wives will listen and learn how you can pray that your husband, the father of your children, will become a dad for them. Pray that you as young people would listen 
to the description of what a godly father, dad is like, and that you would start to say, God, make me that kind of a person. Young ladies, that you would, as you look down the road for someone to become a partner with for the rest of your life, that you would find someone who has these characteristics. So in addressing dads, I hope that all of us will look and say, how can I effectively support those who are in this role? And as a father, Paul brings to the table in Corinth very specific attributes. And I just want to list five characteristics out of this text of what a good dad is like, of what a good father does in the life of his children, of the kind of passion and concerns that a father has for his children. And the first one is this. A dad will always bring correction into the life of his children. He will always bring correction into the life of his children. Firm, but not necessarily harsh. A dad doesn't overlook detrimental behavior in the life of his kids. The Apostle Paul in verses 8 through 13 has brought a stinging rebuke to the church in Corinth. They needed to hear this. Why? Because arrogance and pride in the life is devastating in its effect. And so Paul doesn't see the arrogance in the church in Corinth and think it of little consequence. He sees a personal responsibility as their spiritual father to go after that issue in their life and to root it out. And he feels so strongly about that that he uses what one writer calls a bit of sanctified sarcasm. When we use sarcasm, and whenever we go on the men's retreat, this always comes up. We always talk about, okay, let, let's be careful that we don't have humor at the expense of each other. And as men, we tend to be pretty crafty and effective in doing that, knocking each other down, sometimes not even knowing how devastating the effect is. When Paul uses sarcasm here, he's not using it for the sake of being funny. He, he's pointing to something that's actually sad. And so when you look at verse 8, he says, already you have everything you want. Already you have become rich. Already you have become kings. And then notice the sarcasm. He says, I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. In other words, they were already thinking of themselves as having arrived and that there was no more work for God to do in their life. They had everything they needed. They didn't need to depend on God. And Paul writes to them sarcastically, already you're there. You've already arrived. There's this ironic, biting sarcasm, but the intention is not humor. The intention is to get them to realize how wrong they are in their personal assessment. Because that's what a dad does. A dad brings reality into the life of his child when there is wrongdoing or wrong behavior. A dad is the one who is instrumental in bringing correction into their lives. And so Paul confronts their pride. In verse 14, after doing that, confrontational work he says i am not writing this to shame you but to warn you which tells us that the goal of correction and whether you're an adult correcting someone you're a friend correcting someone particularly if you're a dad correcting your child please understand that the goal of correction is not to shame someone to if you will embarrass them Know that the goal is not to shame. One writer said it this way. Paul may be speaking with the accents of severity, and there is no denying that as per the last verse in this chapter. But it is not the severity which breaks the spirit, but confronts the will. 
The severity seeks to put the life of a son that has gone astray back onto the right rails and tracks in life. You see, folks, that's the purpose of correction. It's not to devastate someone. When I teach on parenting, uh, one of the things that, that I picked up in studying to prepare was this. The, the, the goal of a parent in confrontation, in correction, is not to break the child's spirit, to destroy personality, characteristics. It's to confront willful rebellion. So it's not to break the spirit. It's to confront the will that refuses direction and leadership. When Paul writes to this church, he says, my desire is not to devastate you, to lay you low, to make you feel like a worm. That's, that's not what he's saying. What is the goal? The goal, Paul says, is to warn you. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. The word warn means to correct through advice or admonition, to put the truth of how they should be living in mind, to put in their minds how they should really see themselves as God's servants. The goal is not to devastate. It is to help. Let me give you an illustration of this as a parent. If you're spending time with your children, do you notice that there is a situation that is escalating? And you, you always have this sense by the kind of noise that you're hearing from the kids in the other room that things are going well or they're not going well. You get around uh, seasoned parents and the radar's up. They hear a certain kind of noise and they know that's not good. I hear the screams and they all sound the same. A seasoned parent hears, okay, that's a scream. Okay, that's a good scream. And then there's another kind of scream that sends up the radar. That says, okay, we're about to have a confrontation. This, this idea of putting in mind and warning doesn't always wait until there is a catastrophe present in the relationships. The idea is to anticipate that there is a problem arising, to intervene with words of correction, to set the matter straight, to give a warning prior to things escalating to the point of needing discipline. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth as a spiritual father. His desire is to give them a warning. It is to pull them aside and to address them so that their behavior can be corrected and modified. Mom and Dad, let me give you this instruction in terms of giving correction to your kids. Act, don't react. Okay? When you're dealing with your kids, act, don't react. Reaction comes in a moment. Okay, it's words of correction without thinking. Okay, what you need to do is pause. You may need to say to your child, you need to go sit in your room because daddy has to talk to you. Okay, it's, it's not a reactionary kind of instruction. It's, a, it's an act. It's a decision. It's a willful choice to choose not to shame, to dress down, but instead to warn and to see them grow. Um, when your children begin to drive, you, you wait for that phone call, okay? Because you know that many accidents occur amongst those that are new drivers. And so you kind of wait for that phone call. It would be wise in that regard to prepare yourself for that phone call, okay? Because guess what? One day it's likely that a fairly high percentage of young people are going to have problems with cars. Some things are going to happen. And if you're not careful when you get that phone call, when they're out in your brand new car, you're going to tend to have a reaction rather than to say, you know what, no, okay, this is a moment that I can teach them. You can lose that moment by having the wrong attitude. As Paul writes to this church, he says, my desire is to admonish you, to warn you. It's not to be picky and critical. 
be careful that our relationship with our children in terms of correction is not picky and critical. Folks, especially dads, there are things we can overlook without doing damage to our kids. There are things that we cannot overlook without doing damage to our kids. Okay, and it is wisdom on the part of a father to know that correction is necessary. It is essential, but to be very careful that I don't shame, but that instead the goal is to bring them to a place of maturity, is to restore them, it is to grow them. Okay, and we, we have to live with a very delicate balance, seeking God's wisdom and direction there. So Paul brings to the table, as a father to this church, a spirit of correction. Something else that Paul brings to the table is affection. Every good dad, every strong dad is characterized by this. Our children need our love and affection. At the end of verse 14, Paul says, I write to you, and here's how he describes them as my dear, or some translations are going to say, beloved children. The word is agape tas. It's just a, the, an adjectival form of the noun agape. What Paul says, you are my children of choice. You are the chosen objects of my parental affection. Paul's love, this, this amazes me. <clears throat> because as you read through the rest of this book, you're going to find that these people are taking very serious shots at Paul's character and at his credentials. It doesn't cause him to lash out and react. Instead, he acts out of affection in a way that will benefit this church that has been devastated by sin. You go into chapter 5, we're going to step into a, just a, a minefield of moral struggles and difficulties. But as Paul writes to them, he wants them to know that as he looks at them, he sees beloved children, objects of his personal affection and love. It's not an easy group to love. The bottom line is this. Sometimes your kids will be easy to love and sometimes it will be a choice. It will not flow out of feeling. You'll be reminding yourself, this is your child. As you respond, remember that. Dads, we come home from work, we come home from busy schedules, we carry stress in our lives, responsibility and relationship to the bigger picture of our lives. It is easy to forget that our children need affection. They need affection. For Paul, this love was an intense love. It was also a verbal love. Look at verse 17 of this chapter. Paul says, For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I, what? Love. Dads, strive to find opportunity for your love to be expressed in words to your kids. They need your affection. If you have daughters... My conviction is this. If you don't give them affection, they're going to go find it somewhere. They're going to go find it somewhere. Why? God hardwired them to need that. Be sure you take time to speak affectionately into their lives. Paul could say of Timothy, this is my son who I love. Read the beginning of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Here's where you're going to find Paul says, Timothy, my, doesn't just say my son, he has this propensity to always have to slip in an adjective when he talks to Timothy. Timothy, my dear son. Timothy, my beloved son. When you read that, you get the sense that Paul understood as a spiritual father his relationship to these people. In spite of their rebellion, he still loved them. 
You deal with parents who have older adult children that are living in rebellion. And as Christians, here's what you, you find this, in spite of the rebellion, this affection, this love. Dads, can I, can I call us to be affectionate with an intense love, with a verbal love, with a gentle love, and with a love that serves? Because if you go back to chapter 4, where we're at, verse 1, what is, he, what is Paul? How does he talk about himself? He describes himself as a servant who is affectionately and lovingly serving this church. May God give us the gift of affection. May we cultivate a desire to be men of affection like Paul was and like the Savior was. The passage I read for you at the beginning of the service, John 13, Jesus demonstrated to them the full extent of his love. Jesus' relationship with the disciples was typically characterized by correction and deep feelings of affection because that's what a man does in his relationships. He brings correction. He speaks the truth. Jesus does that with the disciples. And then this undercurrent of deep love and affection for disciples that are <clears throat> extremely hard to get along with, unreliable, self-exalting. And what is he? He's correcting them, yes, but he's not shaming them. And he is affectionate in his love towards them. Dads, be affectionate. Another thing that Paul imparts to this church is truth. The idea of the word that I want to use is instruction. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, therefore I urge you, and I think this is one of the bravest statements in this whole epistle, therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I am sending Timothy to you, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now that is a fascinating, comprehensive statement. Paul not only corrects, he not only demonstrates affection, he also gives instruction to this church. And I just want to say this quickly. There are two ways that you give instruction to people. What's the first way that you give instruction to people? Okay, say it louder. Okay, by example, and what's the second way you give instruction? Okay, by words. Okay, you teach people, you instruct your kids, Dad, by what you say and by how you live. The Apostle Paul, I think in this verse, says something very amazing. He says... I urge you, and this is the word, come alongside and speak into the ear. It's the job of a coach. I urge you, follow my example. Imitate me. The word imitate is mimic in the Greek. Mimic me. Now, here's something that's irrefutable. Our children will mimic us. Okay, one of the most humbling things as a parent that you can say to your kids is something like this. Don't just do what I say, do what I do. Do what I do. You don't even have to say that to your kids. Because they learn by your words that you teach, and they learn by the example that you live. The Apostle Paul, and Dad, this is the key in this instruction. If most of what my kids pick up, they pick up by catching it rather than it being taught to them. If it's caught rather than taught. Okay, then I have a, an incredibly heavy burden that rests on my shoulders to be sure that I am a man, mom, a woman of integrity. 
that my life and my words match, that they're not hypocritical, that they're not out of sync. I would argue that it is impossible to override a bad example with good words. It is impossible to override a bad example with good words. One writer said it this way, and I thought this was fascinating. He said, a good deed is worth a thousand words. We often say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, how about this? A good deed, the picture of your life, the illustration of your life, is worth a thousand words. It's not that words are unnecessary. Words are vital to communicating biblical truth. But your life is what puts the accent on the end of the lesson. It's, your life is what makes Christian teaching believable and practical and doable. Because they see it happen in your life as you are led by the Spirit and perhaps by the grace of God. They will catch that desire. I think it's fascinating also in verse six or 17 that Paul says, I am sending Timothy to you, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He is reliable. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ. He'll... In, in a sense, what Paul is saying is this. It's something like, perhaps in your rebellion that is reflected in verses 8 through verse 13, you have forgotten the teaching and the example that I gave you. That is incredibly gracious, isn't it? That as Paul sends a messenger to them, he, he says, I want Timothy to remind you, because it seems to me that you have left these truths drift off the page of your life. And so I'm sending Timothy to remind you. Do you ever notice this in your personal life? That often it is not that we rebel against Christ as a choice. It is simply that we forget him and his principles. Most of us, when we find ourselves having drifted away from the Lord, we can't look back to a day when we said, you know what, I chose at that point to no longer follow Christ. And that's not the way it works, is it? The way it works is that we slowly move away from and drift away from a personal and deep relationship with Christ. Dad, be careful that you maintain a close relationship with Christ so that the message of your life that your children are catching is powerful and positive and Christ-like. We have a responsibility to communicate the truth of God's word to our children. We do not have a responsibility, and please understand this, to live a perfect life before our kids. You go back to verse 2 of this chapter. What does Paul say? It is required of those who have been given a trust that they prove faithful. Not perfect. There are, young people, hear this. There are no perfect parents you may look at your parents and see the flaws. Understand this. Every child looks at their parents and sees character flaws and inconsistencies. Mom and dad, strive. Strive by the grace of God to consistently live out the principles that we profess as children of God's. Because in doing that, we are instructing our children. And children, give us a break but also hold our feet to the fire. Don't be afraid to speak into our lives respectfully. Dad, you may be, not be able to be perfect. It's too late for that, for all of us. But we can be faithful. We need to make deliberate choices 
and efforts to live <clears throat> consciously in the presence of Christ and to exhibit Him to our children. Paul sends Timothy because he knew that Timothy lived the Word of God. He lived the life. There was no inconsistency but what, between what Timothy would teach and how he lived. <clears throat> and when you find inconsistencies in your life, let it be an opportunity to exhibit to your kids how sinners confront their sin. When they see imperfection, would you humble yourself and admit it to them? Because your kids are going to make the same kinds of mistakes that you make. May we show them the way of grace. That when we have failed, there is a Redeemer. There is a Savior who has paid the full price for our sin. And may we lead them back in that direction. Another gift that we give to our kids is the gift of discipline. And this is the hard one. This is the hard one. Our kids need instruction. They need correction. Sometimes they need to experience negative consequences for choices they have made. And Paul's, in a sense, laying out for the church in Corinth the choice. He says, I can come to you with strong words over with words of affection. And in a sense, what he's saying to them is, which do you want? Make a choice. Dad, employ your kids in this way. Bring them up, the Bible says, in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. A child left to himself, Proverbs says, will bring his mother to shame. There are times when a parent has to intervene with more degrees of severe consequence if the child's will remains unbroken and stubborn. That's, that is where it takes courage to be a father. To bring discipline that is at once loving and decisive. Because it understands that there are things that cannot be overlooked without them having a negative impact in the life of our kids. It is hard to discipline your kids. If you love your kids, it's hard. But as dads, we must realize that sometimes it is what is required. I was talking to a dad on the phone the other day. He was debating over a very a simple decision from my perspective. But for him, the reality of it was... I got this choice to make in relationship to my son, and I don't know what to do. I don't, and here's what he said, I don't want to hurt him. Here's the truth. And I said to him, I said, I totally understand what you're talking about. I totally understand. It's hard to make the choices that hurt our kids, isn't it? But what our children need is not a friend. They need a dad. They need a mom. They need someone who can make the hard calls. To see that child become everything that God wants them to be. We must at times be willing to demonstrate our love to them through acts of discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 says that is the way that we show our kids that we love them. The last gift that a dad brings to his child is this. And just this, this is just central to this whole book, so I think it'll make sense. The gift a dad brings to his child is the gospel. It's the gospel. Dads, be gospel-saturated men. And I mean this in two ways. I mean, communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, His cross work, to your kids. You as a dad bear, I believe, primary responsibility for communicating the truth of Christ to your children. Ask yourself this question. Have I cared enough about my kids to be sure that they know the message of the gospel. I'm not saying ask them to make a decision. And please be careful. 
But what I would encourage you to do is to be sure that you have encouraged your children to understand what a Savior Jesus Christ has done for them. Communicate that message, Mom, Dad. Communicate the gospel of Christ. Have a home that is gospel saturated. Because if you do, here's what will happen. It will mean that when you relate to your children in their times of need for instruction, correction, discipline, and affection, that you will be being taught by the centerpiece of Christianity, the cross of Christ. You will always relate to them as a sinner who has received grace. If you have trusted Christ, if you have been born again by grace through faith, you are one who is always in debt to God. And when you move into their lives, it will always be with an attitude of knowing that I am a sinner coming to a sinner. I am never better than them coming down to them. Okay, I have this strange position of leadership in the life of my kids that God has given me, but I really am just what they are. I'm a sinner. And when I speak into their life and bring correction into their life, it should always be covered with and, 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 and in a sense immersed in grace. A thought that fascinates me is that when I come to the end of this letter, chapter 15 and verse 9, Paul talks about himself being completely unworthy of being a servant of Christ. Why? Here's what he says. I persecuted the church of Christ. What is Paul saying? As I come to you, church in Corinth, and as I bring correction gently and sometimes strongly into your life, I do it in the shadow of the cross. I'm not coming to you as a man who has a pristine past, full of purity and love and joy. No. Paul is, look, in the writing of Scripture, he's self-conscious. I persecuted the church of Christ. That hangs over his life. He is a forgiven sinner. And I believe it's why when he corrects and disciplines and instructs and loves, there is this gentleness that goes around it that makes Paul a, an awesome spiritual father. And the same would be true for us. If we just let the cross hang, let the shadow of the cross be cast over our lives so that when we interact with our kids in the ways that they so desperately need it, it is not prideful and rejected by them as a result. It flows out of brokenness and humility. That must do what it must do, but realizes that the correction is coming from a fallen man or a fallen woman in their life who has been deeply blessed by the grace of God, and that when that child turns with open arms, there will be a Savior waiting to restore them just like He has done for us. Have a life, Dad, that is filled with the gospel of Christ. There are no par perfect parents. And teens, I would just say this to you. The greatest blessing you can have in your life is to love your mom and dad to the best of your God-given ability in their imperfections. And dads and moms, I, I could say the same thing to you. Please understand this. There is on earth no adequate substitute for you. Not, not. There is no adequate substitute why Paul can say to the church in Corinth, you only have one spiritual father. You may have 10,000 other people that are involved in your life in various ways, but you have one dad. 
for every dad in this room. Let that truth settle down in your heart. You are not replaceable. There is no adequate substitute. If God's let you live this long, in spite of the fact whether your children are adults or young, there is no adequate substitute for you. Young men, when you look forward to being a dad someday, remember all the work that God is seeking to do in your life today to make you what he wants you to be because one day there will be no adequate substitute for you in the life of your kids. Let's bow our heads together this morning.